1: Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Chris Babbitts. Today's guest is Lauren Turk, the author of To Bring the Good News to All Nations, Evangelical Influence on Human Rights and U.S. Foreign Relations, published by Cornell University Press. In to bring the good news to all nations, Dr. Turek links the development of evangelical foreign policy lobbying to overseas missionary work revealing the extent of Christian influence on American foreign policy from the late 1970s through the 1990s. Additionally, Dr. Turek shows that evangelical advocacy shifted the definitions and priorities of U.S. human rights policies with repercussions that can still be felt today. Thank you so much for being with us, Lauren.
0: Thank you so much for having me, Chris.
1: To get things started, could you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself?
0: Sure. Uh, So, I'm an assistant professor at Trinity University, which is in San Antonio, Texas. Uh, At Trinity, I teach classes on modern U.S. history, U.S. foreign relations, religion and politics, and public history. And I'm actually also the director of a new museum studies minor. I'm really fascinated, in terms of my research, by points of intersection between U.S. domestic policy and foreign policy, uh, particularly as it pertains to grassroots and interest group activism. So much of the research that I've done to date has looked at religious groups as non-state foreign policy actors looking at their influence on policymaking in the United States, as well as the global and transnational networks that they've built. And what I'm really interested in seeing is how these small groups of of, uh, domestic actors can actually shape and influence international relations on really significant issues, such as trade or human rights. And so I've looked at a lot of these themes in journal articles and essays, and it's a key theme in, in my recent book.
1: That's great. Uh, we'll start with probably the most loaded question for anybody who studies evangelicals. So who are the evangelicals you write about?
0: Oh my gosh. So this is a great question and it was one that I knew I would encounter and I wrestled with it a lot as I was writing the book because every time you talk about evangelicals, you get that that definition question. Who are they? How are you defining evangelical? This is a huge debate, particularly among religious historians and religious studies scholars. How do we define evangelical? And this is particularly loaded for me because I actually see myself primarily as a historian of US foreign relations. So I didn't want to get overly bogged down by this debate of what makes an evangelical. But I obviously needed to think really hard about it, like which groups, which individuals do I include in the book? How do I define who counts as an evangelical for the purpose of this book? And so, of course, I looked at a lot of the definitions that scholars of evangelicalism have put out. So there's the very famous uh, David Bebbington quadrilateral, and of course, historians like Mark Knoll and George Marston have also offered Um, their definitions. And then I found that a sociologist named Mark Shibley had written a definition that kind of summarized or distilled all of those different scholars' takes on it, and his work was really influential to me. He defined evangelicals this way, and I'm going to just quote from his article because it was really helpful for me, and I actually quote from it in the book. So he said, quote, the term evangelical refers to a broad group of believers who have had a born again." conversion experience, resulting in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, accept the full authority of the Bible in matters of faith and the conduct of everyday life, and are committed to spreading the gospel by bearing public witness to their faith. I love this definition, and I thought it was really helpful for me in terms of thinking through how I should shape this book, because it's a very capacious definition, but it's still really simple and straightforward. It looks at practice as well as belief, and it accounts for the incredible diversity of practice and beliefs that fall under the rubric of evangelicalism. It also takes individuals at their word, right? If they've had a born-again experience and they identify with these other aspects, they are self-defining as evangelical, and I think that fits well with the individualistic nature of evangelicalism. And most importantly for me, it really places an emphasis on evangelism. The Seeing oneself, seeing one's goal as bearing public witness to the faith, going out into the world spreading the faith, that was hugely influential for the groups that I studied in terms of how they understood foreign policy. There are just so many different expressions of evangelicalism, and they vary by race, by region, by culture. And so this seemed like a very useful and broad definition for me to work from. So from there, from that broad definition, having looked at all these different definitions that are out there. I was able to focus in on individual believers as well as groups of believers, whether they were in denominations or they were non-denominational, if it was a church or a specific parachurch organization. And that gave me a pretty large corpus of individuals and groups that I could then examine further to see which ones really exerted an influence on policymaking. So I don't claim to be addressing or writing about all evangelicals. I'm really focused on those that organized in particular ways about particular issues, but I did use that broad definition of evangelical to kind of get my arms around who who might count. And then I could look deeper and further refine that to say, okay, of these evangelicals, which ones had the most influence on policy? So I was able to look at not just members of the Nos- National Association of Evangelicals, but also Pentecostal groups and charismatics and non-denominational groups and so on and so forth.
1: I think we can also continue with somebody who I don't know anyone who would deny that they're an evangelical, which is Billy Graham. And in your book, you showed how he played such a prominent role in jumpstarting the evangelical quest for human rights. How did he do this?
0: This was sort of fascinating, and I don't even know that he necessarily did so knowingly. And I would certainly also say that evangelical concern about certain violations of human rights predated him. But I do start the book with a chapter on the 1974 International Congress on World Evangelization, which Billy Graham and the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association organized. And this conference, this Congress was incredibly significant in jumpstarting not just the evangelical quest for human rights, but this broad global evangelical network. So in 1974, thousands of evangelicals from all over the world, and notably from the global South as well, from Africa, from Latin America, from Asia, they came together in Lausanne, Switzerland to this congress that Graham organized to strategize for a new push for global evangelization. And Graham organized the conference because he was deeply concerned about what he perceived as this kind of crisis of missions. He and many other evangelicals were watching as Protestant denominations, mainline denominations, started to reduce their commitment to overseas missionary work. They were concerned about cultural imperialism and the process of decolonization that was going on. So, evangelicals were worried that less missionary work was happening at a moment when the demographics of the world were changing. They were watching as the population in the global south was becoming larger and larger. And evangelicals like Graham looked at this demographic change is an opportunity. Here's a chance to evangelize in Africa, in Latin America, and elsewhere. Um, Graham and other evangelicals were really worried that there were some two billion souls out there that had not yet heard the gospel. And so they're really concerned that if they don't take action to ramp up evangelism, to fill in the gaps as other Christian Uh, groups pull out, that they would be failing in their biblical responsibility to work toward the Great Commission, their responsibility to share the gospel with people of all nations. What was interesting, though, is as they get to the conference where they're supposed to be planning this strategic push for more missionary work, there are, of course, evangelicals from the Global South there who are sharing their take on this. And some of them, uh, people like C. Rene Padilla, who was an Ecuadorian theologian, and others, they really saw that push as being deeply imperialistic. They were very critical of Western and American missionary models. It's not that they did not embrace or care about evangelism. They were evangelicals. They wanted to evangelize, but they were very critical of their U.S. counterparts because they saw them as being a little too focused on the numbers of trying to get as many converts as possible and not being as attuned to the realities of poverty or the suffering in many of the countries that evangelicals from the global south came from. And and they really saw that suffering as as something that Christians had a responsibility to intervene in to make better and, and that if you couldn't do that, you were not going to really be representing the faith. And so um, Padilla and others called on U.S. evangelicals in particular to focus more on social justice, whereas many U.S. evangelicals pushed back against that. They wanted evangelism to be the primary focus. So there's this tension that emerges at this conference between social justice and evangelism, and that tension made its way into what was known as the Lausanne Covenant, which was a set of principles for global evangelism that, that many of the participants signed before they left the Congress. It was kind of a, a document that stated the goals of evangelicals for the world over, which was really remarkable because evangelicalism is so kind of inchoate. There isn't you know, one single body that dictates what evangelicals do, and yet we have this document here where they agree on a set of principles. And so the Congress and the debate over social justice versus evangelism and the covenant are all really important for my book. Uh, The Congress, again, is this key moment that brings together these evangelical thinkers from all over the globe. It catalyzes a new global evangelical network, a sense of community. But the debate that broke out there highlights this core disjuncture that ends up shaping US evangelical thinking about the world around them and about human rights. U.S. evangelicals were focused on evangelism first. They were pushing for U.S. policies that would promote evangelism and religious freedom, but that often came at the expense of of policies that would foster social justice aims. And the covenant actually spoke to that. One of the points um, that the covenant included, which I'm just going to quote from here, the covenant said that, quote, the leaders of the nations, um, must guarantee freedom of thought and conscience and freedom to practice and propagate religion in accordance with the will of God and as set forth in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. So that's the sort of fascinating part of the covenant that focuses on defining human rights through the ability to practice and propagate your faith. And the covenant also talks a bit about social justice, but it downplays it it places evangelism as a primary aim. So, so Graham's Congress really played this key role in shaping the global evangelical network as well as core thinking about human rights um, in terms of how US evangelicals thought about it in the 70s. And this all unfolded against the backdrop of a larger international human rights movement. Um, but the focus on evangelism is so critical. It really contributed to domestic political mobilization around issues related to religious freedom and human rights.
1: I thought this was such a fascinating part of the book, was trying to think about these evangelical competing visions of human rights. But you also have a, a lot to say about how there might be different evangelical visions, especially based upon one, where one's uh, living and, and birthplace. But there's also big differences between what might be described as liberal or secular understandings of human rights. What, what are those differences?
0: Yeah, this is a great question, because so often when I talk about this vision that evangelicals have for human rights, folks uh, are like, what? What what is this? This is not the kind of focus on rights of the body or freedom from torture that we typically think of when we hear the term religious rights. Um, And we should remember that um, evangelicals were, particularly in in the 1970s, in the U.S., they're very focused on religious persecution. They're very motivated by their desire to go out and evangelize the world and one of the factors that makes that hard for them to do is that there are certain countries that are not open to evangelism uh, in part because of their political system so countries like china and the soviet union uh, under communist governance did not allow for missionaries to come into their countries, and they often restricted religious practice. But there were also um, countries in the Middle East and elsewhere that, that also were not open to evangelism. So given this renewed focus on overseas evangelism, this desire to evangelize and reach all the unreached, evangelicals really bristled at these restrictions on religious freedom and wanted to advocate for greater religious liberty. And so when they talked about Human rights—they defined it incredibly narrowly as pushing for religious freedom, because from their perspective, that was the first right, and every other right came from that. Um, So they developed this very sort of narrow and particular conception of human rights. It's again freedom of religion, freedom of conscience, all rooted in that desire for evangelism. There, for them, there's really nothing on earth, no. physical torture no you know poverty nothing like that compared to the loss of the potential for eternal salvation so they're seeing that as though you know if you don't have the potential to be saved what does anything else matter and so they they really advocate for religious liberty first this is obviously very different from the types of secular or liberal understandings of human rights that say how can you have how can you have any rights if you're not safe from torture, if you're not able to even have more expansive rights, like the right to your health, the right to access to food and water, uh, the, the freedom from poverty? Um, and so there, the liberal and, and secular conception of human rights is one that is much more capacious, much more embracing of social um, and economic justice and those principles whereas evangelicals developed this much more narrow conception of human rights focused primarily on the freedom of conscience. And what's interesting is that in the 1970s, debates about what human rights mean are going on. It's a term that is malleable um, and can be attached to a number of different political objectives. No one wants to be against human rights. So the language of human rights becomes very powerful, but there's Uh, struggle over its meaning. And the evangelical conception of human rights as one that's relatively narrowly focused and not focused on kind of economic justice or broader social justice is very appealing to political conservatives in the United States. And so we see it influencing those groups in particular.
1: You cover a lot of ground in this book and you do a lot of really interesting things, including something that I, I found fascinating for some time. I'm really interested in learning more about this. You show kind of not only the creation of these evangelical networks, but also the way that these networks employ new technologies to try to create a transnational community of believers. So what did this process look like?
0: So I was really excited about this because so often when we hear about the emergence of this new evangelical um, global community starting in the 70s, which that's not that's not a new idea, but, but we often hear, well, Pentecostalism and other evangelicalism, it's spread through the world because of new technology. And I said to myself, well, what was the actual mechanism by which that happened? What technology are we talking about? And so I started to look into how evangelicals were using technology. And interestingly enough, there were a number of working groups at the International Congress on World Evangelization that dedicated themselves to the issues of mobilizing technology and communication strategies to better share the gospel. And these uh, groups actually tapped into that debate that I was talking about earlier, which is that there was this enormous critique about cultural imperialism that unfolded at the Congress. And Western and U.S. evangelicals, because they place a kind of primary focus on evangelism, they don't want to give up on evangelism, but they also recognize that these critiques about cultural imperialism, they can't just ignore them. So their solution is to try to find ways to be Uh, more, quote, 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 culturally sensitive um, in their modes of evangelism. And one of the ways that they do that is by trying to find ways to communicate the gospel message that they're trying to share in different cultural contexts. So they want to find ways to use communication strategies and technology like radio and later television and satellites to share the gospel in a, in a cultural context that will be understandable, all over the world so that they're not just spreading within their hopes. Their hopes is that they would not just be spreading a kind of Americanized gospel, but they could actually be facilitating the creation of programming that would be specific to any cultural context. So if you're a Latin American evangelical, you can create evangelical programming that will resonate in your country or your local community where a missionary from the United States would never be able to to explain the faith in a culturally uh, resonant way. And so one of the ways in which these groups really develop this network is that they, first of all, evangelicals are very early to adopt radio. Uh, They set up radio networks all over the world. Um, But one of the things that they try to do, particularly after Lausanne, is to bring in more programming and more, voices from the local communities in which they are working. So having, you know, multiple languages and not just translating from the English to another language, but really thinking about a cultural translation process. And this is especially important for those closed countries. There are a number of clandestine radio stations that go up outside of the Iron Curtain that are intended to be broadcast into say the Soviet Union or the Eastern Bloc or China or the Middle East um, that uh, that use increasingly powerful radio transmitters to transmit the gospel message into these countries. And what's fascinating is that even in those countries where you're not allowed to evangelize and where people face significant um, potential penalties for practicing certain evangelical faiths, these letters come out from listeners in these countries to the people who are making these um, making these radio programs and so it becomes a way to get information about what's happening in Christian life behind the Iron Curtain or in um, uh, countries in the Middle East and elsewhere. but it's also a way to potentially find new followers. So it helps to grow, to grow the network, to grow the connections of evangelicals and that sense of community. So even though we often think of radio as being a kind of one-way form of communication, evangelicals really try to find ways to make it a two-way form. And then there's also this really interesting prophetic element that comes into it that, that looking at the Bible, many of the folks who were involved in planning these radio stations or satellites, they start to interpret these technologies as something that god intends them to use that that they have to have a certain stewardship over these uh these uh, particular tools um so it becomes it becomes really interesting to kind of see that uh as it plays out um ben armstrong uh, who's the he was the director of the national religious broadcaster um he ended up using Uh, quite a bit of prophetic language to talk about satellite technology in particular. He actually um, started to look at the Bible, in particular, uh, Revelation. Um, Revelation preaches that the gospel would come down from heaven to all the peoples on earth from an angel. And Ben Armstrong began to think about what if that's not an actual angel, but what if it's satellite technology. What if satellite technology is the tool that we use to broadcast the gospel to all the people? Um, We should be pursuing satellite technology because that could be our ticket. And so there are even interesting ways in which these religious leaders begin to read the Bible through the lens of using new technology to achieve their missionary agenda, but also to, to build connections among evangelicals, regardless of where they lived. Um, so it was really really sort of fascinating to see that and and it what's interesting is that doesn't stop with satellites there are you know evangelicals are really early adapters of the internet and the early bulletin board systems in in the eighties it's they're always looking for ways to get out there and connect with their brethren
1: you've mentioned the iron curtain and and efforts to reach beyond that, and the bulk of your book is uh three different case studies. Uh, one's the Soviet Union, another one's Guatemala, and another one's South Africa. So what compelled you to choose these three different nations as your case studies and evangelical activism within these nations?
0: One of the things I was really interested in is in thinking about the the time period that the book takes place. Um, I, really, I start in the 1970s, but if you'll notice, many of the case studies look at the late 1970s and the 1980s. And so the question was, what was happening in terms of U.S. foreign policy in the late 1970s and the 1980s? Where are there regions or countries that the United States is particularly concerned about? Um, And so particularly during the Reagan years, we have a number of Cold War hotspots that are of interest to me as a foreign policy scholar. A considerable amount of U.S relations in the in the Reagan era a lot of the preoccupation of the Reagan administration is with Latin America and particularly Central America there's also of course a strong concern about the Soviet Union but it was not just the kind of regional concerns these I'm also was also looking for case studies that had a particular human rights dimension so of course given the number of genocides and the incidences of mass violence in Central America. Okay. So that's a good region to look at. The Soviet Union, because of the extent of religious persecution, not just against Christians, but also against uh, Jews uh, and other denominations, uh, other sects, that was a huge concern in terms of human rights during the 1970s and 1980s for the United States. And then I cannot think of an issue that generated more concern about human rights than apartheid South Africa in the 1980s. Uh, And of course, Southern Africa as a region was of particular concern to the Reagan administration, again, out of Cold War concerns about the spread of communism in that part of the continent. So there's this intersection in these three areas, in Guatemala, in the Soviet Union, and broadly the Eastern Bloc, and in South Africa, where we see Cold War concerns that are, you know, geostrategic concerns of the Reagan administration um, coalescing with broad human rights issues, which made these particularly good regions to look at. So Guatemala, uh, South Africa, and and the Soviet Union, those are my regions that I chose. And I picked them because they also provided... A, a few different ways of thinking about what, what actually is foreign policy influence. When we say that these religious groups had an influence on foreign policy, what does that mean? And I contend that it means a number of different things and that, that we can take seriously the influence of religious actors, even if we're not necessarily seeing them achieve all of the objectives that they want. So there's a range of ways that people can have influence kind of clandestine influence, actual outright influence on the ground. We can also think about which metrics, which aspects of influence were more effective or less effective. Um, So to speak a little bit more specifically, the first topic that I tackle is religious persecution in the Soviet Union. So evangelicals throughout the 1970s are growing increasingly concerned about Persecution that their Christian brethren are facing there. This isn't a new concern. They have been concerned about religious persecution in the Soviet Union since the Soviet Union came to be. It it was an ongoing concern. But in the 1970s, there's two key things that happen. First of all, evangelicals gain a considerable amount more political power as a group. Prior to the 1970s, they're not a very effective or consolidated political bloc, they don't necessarily all vote the same way. With the broader rise of the religious right in the mid to the late 70s, though, the evangelicals, not all of them, and we're talking mostly about white evangelicals here, they tend to start to coalesce around the Republican Party, and they start to amass more and more influence. So they're having more influence in Congress. They also watched as Jewish activist groups protested efforts by U.S. leaders to normalized trade relations to establish most favored nation trading status with the Soviet Union in the early 1970s, again, because of religious persecution, because they were making it very hard for Jew, uh, Jewish people in the Soviet Union to emigrate, and they were just incredible, incredibly repressive. And Christian groups, evangelical groups, saw that Jewish lobbying Was very effective in imposing constraints on US policy with the Soviet Union. They actually um, were a huge contributing factor to the passage of the Jackson Bannock Amendment to the 1974 Trade Act, which made most favored nation trading status contingent on a nation abiding by certain key human rights objectives, some basic human rights norms, including um, the right to emigrate and others. And evangelical Christians looked at that and they said, hey, why aren't we? doing more to advocate on behalf of our brethren in the Soviet Union and other closed societies. And so the early, the the sort of, um, that case study on the Soviet Union really looks at that process as they become increasingly mobilized around that issue, trying to get religious dissidents released. But not only that, trying to ensure that evangelicals in the Soviet Union could stay in the Soviet Union and practice their faith. They really wanted to use the levers of US foreign policy to push the Soviet Union to change its own internal policies. And what was fascinating is that evangelical pressure, they're coming to Congress and testifying, writing letters to the State Department, writing letters to the presidents, brought the issue of religious persecution It kind of elevates it so that it continually came up in the summits that the U.S. had with the Soviet Union, and particularly in the 1980s in the Reagan administration. And there's a lot of behind the scenes or quiet diplomacy that took place because of the pressure that evangelicals put on to get religious dissidents released and to try to push the Soviet Union to make changes fascinatingly, by the time the Soviet Union collapses, evangelicals have become so visible in that fight that um, Soviet leaders or former Soviet leaders actually invite um, some evangelical groups to come to help foster civil society in the new uh, Commonwealth of Independence States, the uh, uh, Russia and, and the other states. So that is an example, a case where Evangelical activism, although it's at times at cross-purposes with some of the other aims of the administration, it's actually very effective broadly and over time at, at pushing for change and at constraining certain U.S. policies or shaping U.S. policies. Um, in the case of Guatemala, which is another uh, case that I study, we see a more direct influence. Uh, and one where they're not working in concert with Congress as they were with the Soviet Union, where there was broad agreement that Soviet treatment of of religious minorities was a problem. In the case of Guatemala in the early 1980s, there's an evangelical dictator that came to power, a man named Rios Montt. He was a convert to a U.S. missionary church, and when he came to power after a coup, led by some young young men in in the army who did not necessarily realize that he had converted to evangelicalism he actually brings in uh, not just not just uh, the evangelicals from his church as advisors but also some of the US evangelical church leaders so he's actually getting direct advice from US evangelicals they are actually shaping policies on the ground in Guatemala in interesting ways and having conversations with US leaders and they um Mobilize a tremendous amount of organizing in the United States among evangelicals to try to get the United States to provide military aid to Rios Mont, who was making the argument that he was going to pacify his country, uh, you know, cl- cleanse it of potential communists, and then they thought make the country more godly or more aligned with evangelical principles. And Congress, very opposed to this, um, Rios Riosmont was. Um, and the country of Guatemala had suffered for many decades in a civil war. There were a lot of human rights abuses. It was very clear that Rio Montt was engaged in the mass killing of indigenous people, a genocide in his country. The U.S. Congress wanted not to be funding that sort of thing in the 1980s. So U.S. evangelicals worked very hard to try to get some kind of aid to Rio Montt. They did their own fundraising. They came down and they staffed these strategic hamlets in Guatemala, they actually play this really um, very visible role uh, and actually go around Congress in many ways to try to get that aid. So in that case, they're working against Congress. They're lobbying against what Congress wants. And when they meet resistance, they kind of go around Congress and try to find other ways through Canada and, and Israel to get the kind of aid that Rio Montt wants. So they're having this direct influence on policy, not just in the United States, but in Guatemala, and it has these human rights dimensions because, of course, he's committing this genocide, and they are in many ways abetting it uh, and writing about it in that way. And finally, the case of South Africa is this is this very different type of human rights story, this very different story of influence, because evangelicals, While they are talking about their concern about apartheid and they are acknowledging that apartheid is a problem in the sense that it hinders their efforts at evangelism, which is a very narrow way of of addressing apartheid, Um, they also are worried that if they support groups like that, support for groups like the ANC in South Africa might lead to the spread of communism there. And so there is this. To somewhat tortured effort to try to move the government of South Africa in a kind of gradual way away from apartheid so that they can facilitate evangelism and without inviting communist uh, power. And they're they're doing so by sending, in some cases um, there are kind of cell groups that get set up there. Uh, to try to work with the government. But in the United States, what we see are US evangelicals rushing to the aid of the Reagan administration as it sought to stop the efforts of more liberal members of Congress um, from imposing sanctions and from disinvesting in South Africa. So there was a big movement to try to punish South Africa for apartheid. The Reagan administration was opposed to it. They were worried that doing so would again, potentially invite the spread of communism to Southern Africa. And evangelicals in the U.S., as well as others, kind of lent moral support to the Reagan administration in their opposition to uh, the Comprehensive Anti-Apartheid Act. And so there's a case where even though the Comprehensive Anti-Apartheid Act passed over Reagan's veto, evangelicals became a really important constituency in trying to sell Reagan's policies for their own aims. Right? They had particular foreign policy objectives there that were not exactly the same as the um the Reagan administration, they wanted to protect Southern Africa as a kind of Christian nation in Africa. Um, but they become really influential there and they become a kind of key, kind of a key um, group talking about the issue and trying to frame it in a way that was very different. And again, they're not necessarily successful, which is what makes it an interesting case study that they can be influential and they can have a voice in foreign policy without seeing their foreign policy objectives put in place. So those three case studies then provided a way to look at Three different regions that had concerns about Cold War issues, particularly the spread of communism, as well as human rights issues, um, while also giving me a way to look at all the different ways in which influence can be felt, whether it's lobbying, on-the-ground activism, um, or you know, kind of letter writing, that sort of thing, and and thinking about what does success look like for these groups.
1: I think the structure of the book does a great job uh, for educators who might want to assign it because it, uh, they, it frames issues so clearly within each chapter that can be broken up uh, over a couple of weeks for students to read them for different class sessions too. It's kind of wonderfully arranged in that way. Thank you.
0: Yeah, I tried oh. to keep it, it. It's a challenge because the, 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 the chronology of it is overlapping. So there are these sections that all overlap. Uh, but yeah, I, I think it, it, it can very easily be broken up into separate sections for class.
1: So obviously, as a, a U.S. religious historian myself, I see the particular relevance of the history you tell and to bring the good news to all nations. But for our listeners, what would you say is the particular relevance to the present day of the history you tell?
0: For me, I think the thing that is relevant is that we're still seeing some of these arguments about what, what is the goal of U.S. foreign policy? And should one of the primary goals of U.S. foreign policy be promoting religious liberty abroad? Um, In 1998, there was an International Religious Freedom Act that Congress passed that set up new structures within the foreign policy apparatus to promote religious freedom. But, and, and, and U.S. evangelicals were really significant in getting that passed. But the story that I tell helps us think about that goal, I think, in a more critical way, because the ways that we define religious groups and which religious groups need to have their rights protected abroad are shaped in important ways by domestic constituencies like evangelicals. In many cases, we're not necessarily hearing as much about protecting the religious freedom of, say, the Uyghurs in China as we are about the religious freedom of Christians in certain areas. And so because of the influence of the groups that I talk about in this book, we see that that actually shapes how we even define religious liberty in the United States in terms of U.S. foreign policy. So this, these issues are very much with us. They're very relevant for current U.S. foreign policy, um, particularly when we talk about uh, promoting religious liberty and these core American values.
1: Well, Lauren, it's been great getting to chat to you about to bring the good news to all nations. Thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Thank you so much for having me. It was such a pleasure to talk with you.
1: For everyone else, head to the Cornell University Press website to purchase a copy of Lauren's to bring the good news to all nations. And thank you to our listeners for joining us today at New Books Network. I'm Chris Babbitts, wishing you the best as you engage with cutting-edge works of history.